Prior to that moment, no one really knows who Jesus is. And yet now, for the first time, the disciples, through the gift of sight, through the miracle of sight, have seen, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the one we're waiting for. And that changes the whole book, because now the book goes from the question of, who is this guy, to what has the Messiah come to do? And so immediately upon receiving that news from Peter that he is the Christ, Jesus starts to foretell of his death and his resurrection. And that is a total shock to these disciples. I mean, they've just declared him to be the Christ, and in their minds, what that means is you are the mighty warrior king that we've all been waiting for. So let's get on into Jerusalem, let's kick the Romans out, and we can get on with being a great nation again. But Jesus says, no, I've come to die and then rise again. And the disciples don't know where to put themselves. They can't understand. What what do you mean you've come to die? What do you mean rise again? Why would you need to do that? They haven't got a clue really what's going on. And to make it worse, Jesus says, and listen, if you're going to truly follow me, then you'll need to take up your cross and follow me as well. This is shocking to the disciples. And so to inspire them and encourage them, he takes Peter, James, and John by the hand. He leads them up a high hill. And we have the glorious vision of the transfiguration. Jesus begins to radiate white. Elijah and Moses come down from heaven and manifest themselves with Jesus. And a great cloud surrounds them all. Peter and James and John don't know even where to put themselves. But this cloud, the presence of God the Father himself comes. And he declares, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Just like in chapter 1. When Jesus is baptized and God the Father exclaims to the Son, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. In chapter 9, we now see the words of the Father again. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Well, they come down from the mountain inspired, no doubt encouraged, filled with faith that we don't fully get what you're coming to do, but you are the Messiah. This is incredible. Well, Jesus then heals on the way down a boy with an unclean spirit. And in doing so, he answers the question that the disciples are asking all the way down the mountain about what do you mean about this resurrection thing? We don't get it. I mean, pay attention to chapter 9, verse 26, when he heals the young boy. It says, And after crying out (coughs) and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus is helping them see, this is what it's going to be like for me. I'm going to be dead. But three days later, I will rise again. And as Jesus does that, he also strengthens the feeble faith of a father, teaching this father and all that will listen that great things can happen through those who put their faith in me. But the issue isn't the strength of your faith, it's the object of your faith. It's not about how much you have about who you're looking to. And I'm the only one you need to look to. And then he gives in chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, a wonderful lesson on true greatness. Helping these disciples see that greatness isn't about position, it's about service. It's about laying your life down for other people. That's what true greatness really is. Thanks, mate. And then, in chapter 9, verse 38 through 41, this happens. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, 
do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And Saviour, as we walk with you again today, Lord, what a thrill it is to do so. Lord, as you communicate and care for and instruct your disciples, we find ourselves numbered among them. So Lord, would we hear your words? Would you help us by your grace? Would we all leave here today changed by you? In your precious name, amen. You know, there have been many great basketball games and many great basketball moments over many years that have been talked about, that are dramatic, and yet there is nothing in my mind like what took place in the 1994 United States Pro Basketball Playoffs between the Chicago Bulls and the New York Knicks. See, the Chicago Bulls that year were the team to beat. Everybody thought that they were going to be unbeatable, and yet with a few seconds on the clock, they find themselves two points down. They're going to lose the game. <clears throat> and so the coach, Bill Jackson, calls a timeout, gathers the team together, and explains to them, guys, we have got to, we've got to shoot a three-pointer. We've got a few seconds left. We've got to make this work. So he pulls the whole team together, and he explains to the team that here's what we're going to do. We're going to go from you to you to you, and then I want you to pass to Tony Kukoc, and Tony Kukoc is going to shoot a three-pointer, and we're going to win the game. So they do the whole Anstin thing, you know, whoop, whoop, here we go. And they go in, they go running back on. And everybody thinks this is going to be great. They're going to, they're going to win the game. And yet as the team goes running on, one guy, Scotty Pippen, refuses to go on. And as the cameras follow the team back on, it's clear that there are already four players on the pitch. And there's one guy sitting on the bench with a towel over his head, Scotty Pippen, that just refuses to run on. And so the coach quickly gets another player to run on in Scotty Pippen's place. And incredibly, as the whistle goes and the game starts again, they do start passing it around. It does go to Tony Q, coach. He does hit a three-pointer, and they do win the game. And the crowd goes wild. Everybody's loving it. However, all attention of the cameras is on Scotty Pippen. He's one of their best players. And he's sitting, sulking on the bench with a towel over his head, having refused to go on, having refused to play. Well, afterwards, they started to interview Scotty Pippen about why he refused to go on, why he was unwilling to play in that final scene that won the game. And here's what became clear. Scotty Pippen refused to go on because he wasn't at the center of the plan. He hadn't been chosen to score the goal. So I'm not playing. Scotty Pippen was proud. Scotty Pippen was arrogant. Scotty Pippen thought that this should all be about him. It wasn't ultimately about the team winning. It was about him being a superstar. And so if he couldn't be a superstar, he's not even willing to play. He wasn't at the center of the plan, so he doesn't want to play. Well, in all honesty, I submit to you that as we encounter the disciples, chapter 10, verses 38 through 41, we have quite a few Scotty Pippins 
sitting around the table with Jesus in this moment. Disciples who have, over time, become proud. Disciples who have, over time, become arrogant. Disciples who have started to think that this whole plan is all about them. It's not about the mission, it's about them and the part that they play and that they need to be the superstars. And yet what it gives us, and what we're treated to, is a wonderful response to the Saviour that I think changes everybody's lives. A loving and gracious teaching from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that I believe has something to say to all of us. As Martin Luther says, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. It has feet, it runs after me. This text has something to say to all of us. So as we gather around with this bunch of Scotty Pippins, I think we want to be listening up, being aware the Saviour is addressing each and every one of us as well. So two points this morning. The title for the message is A Misplaced Zeal. And two points. Number one, the disciples misplaced zeal. Verse 38. And then number two, the Saviour's appropriate response. This is 39 through 41, a response which I think has something to say to us all. So point one, the disciples misplaced zeal. Let's read again verse 38. It writes, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now suddenly and surprisingly in this text we have a voice that we are far less familiar with in the gospel. And that's the voice of John. This reference to John is rare. In fact it is unique. This is the only time in Mark's gospel where you hear John's voice singled out. He doesn't appear before, he doesn't appear afterwards. Usually we are hearing Peter talking in this gospel. And yet John's statement here is obviously memorable and important to Mark. And so he records it here because it has something to tell us. And what is immediately obvious in this statement that John makes is his typical zeal and passion. And his zeal and passion should not surprise us. See, way back in chapter 3, when we're introduced to John for the first time, Jesus calls John and James to himself, and he gives them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Well, that kind of says something about these dudes, okay? That says something about John and the way he lives his life. One scholar says that in the Hebrew, this, this phrase, Sons of Thunder, would literally mean the loud ones, or the hot-tempered ones, okay? That's what these guys are like. You touch them and like, wow, they're, they're just passionate, they're zealous. They're wired like that by the Lord and from the Lord. So we see them in, in Luke chapter 9, in Luke's gospel, a moment where Jesus comes out, of, uh, comes out of, and, and into a village of Samaria and he's not well received. So he leaves and James and John pull Jesus to a side and say, hey, we've got an idea. If it be your will, let's waste them. Let's call down fire from heaven. All right, that's what these guys are like. They're Muppets, basically, for Jesus. You know, they are just a group of guys, a pair of guys that are passionate, that are zealous, and if people won't follow Jesus, let's waste them. Well, here they are typically zealous and typically passionate. And yet what is most grievous about John's passion in this moment is that his zeal is terribly misplaced. 
This zeal doesn't relate into the zeal of a servant. Jesus has just told them what being a servant really is, what true greatness is, namely considering others more important than yourself. He's just explained that. Yet John's zeal, immediate response, is not one of, oh, I want to serve this man. No, his zeal is one of intolerance, one of elitism, and one of superiority. That's what's going down here. James Edwards, in his commentary, says the following. He says, Being in Jesus' inner circle had at least some detrimental effects on John, as inner circles often do. One detrimental effect is his attitude towards the exorcist. There is nothing subtle about John's elitist attitude towards this unnamed exorcist. It is loud. And it is quite the contradiction to the teaching and example of Jesus in verses 35 through 37. (coughs) Where he says to the disciples, If anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. For John's statement, listen, for John's statement in verse 38 forms quite the contradiction to the teaching and example of Jesus in verses 35 through 37. And so it does. It would appear that Jesus' teaching instruction in verses 35 through 37 has seriously rattled John's cage. There's something that they picked up from what Jesus is saying that has irritated John. And almost involuntarily then, he blurts out verse 38 to try and gain clarity from the Savior. Kind of, I I hear what you're saying, but you don't mean this, right? In his usual atypical zeal, he is passionate to inform the Savior and gain clarity from the Savior. Because Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying about greatness. Jesus, I'm listening to you. I mean, and this is interesting. This is helpful for me, Jesus. You're always serving me. And I hear what you say about true greatness. The true greatness is about serving and preferring others. I get that. But Jesus, we met this guy a while ago who was doing the unthinkable. He was by himself, independently of us, exercising demons from people. I know, it's terrible. He was independently exercising demons from people. The demons were coming out, but we attempted to stop him because he's not one of us, right? So we jumped him. I mean, just imagine the sons of thunder jumping you. I mean, the disciples ganged up on this poor fella that was just praying for people and trying to help them. But they jump him to try and stop him. Quote, it says, attempted to stop him. So this guy must have been a hero of the faith. He fights all the disciples off and still carries on. But Jesus, we attempted to stop him. We know that it was completely unacceptable, right? Right, surely. It was completely unacceptable what he was doing because independently of us, he was exercising demons from people. And that's unacceptable, right? Right, Jesus? James Edwards says it is not a little presumptuous at this stage of discipleship for John to think himself and the other disciples worthy of being followed. And so this is yet another echo of their inflated self-importance. 
And so it is. John is talking to the Saviour in this moment to gain clarity, as if to say, we hear what you say about greatness, but this is still going to be the case, right? It's still going to be about us. How dare this man do that? He's not one of us. John and his fellow disciples hadn't intervened with this independent exorcist to serve him. They hadn't intervened to this man to seek to gather. Listen, tell me, what's your understanding of Jesus? Do you believe he's King of kings and Lord of lords? Are you seeking to help others? Because if so, we want to serve you and encourage you and help you along the way. That isn't what John's done. They've jumped him. They've sought to stop this man from doing these things and they've sought to do that because they believe as a group of disciples that they are unique. They perceive the call of God on their life as the twelve as one of status and rank and privilege and elitism and superiority and has nothing to do with service of others. So this guy, as far as they were concerned, was unauthorized to exercise demons because he wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't one of the big shots. So how dare he do this? You know, given their history of failure, the disciples' perception of themselves really is the height of arrogance, isn't it? When you stop and think about it. I mean, just the passage before, the disciples are praying for people and the demons won't even come out. And yet this independent exorcist is getting the job done. You know what I'm saying? This guy by himself is praying for people. Demons are coming forth and they're being healed in the name of Christ. The disciples haven't even been able to do this just a few pages before. And yet still nonetheless, in the height of arrogance, how dare he do that? That's our job. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm meant to be doing. You know what's happened with the disciples? Having walked with Jesus now for three years, they think of themselves as better than everybody else, as superior to everybody else, as more elite than everybody else. Over time, they've become Scotty Pippin. It's no longer about the mission. It's about me. It's no longer about seeing the gospel go forward and people healed from from sickness and healed from demonic oppression. No, it's about me. It's about my part. They've become a group of Scotty Pippins. And yet the Savior then graciously, typically patient and gracious, doesn't tick them off. He loves them. seeks to teach them and train them and disciple them, knowing that his absence will come soon enough and these men will have a serious part to play. So he instructs them and loves them as to what should have happened, and what needs to happen in the future. So point two, the Saviour's appropriate response. Look with me at verse 39. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. See, quite clearly, Jesus did not agree with or approve of what the disciples had done to this independent exorcist. Quite clearly, Jesus didn't think it was a good idea that they had jumped him. Quite clearly, Jesus is not applauding what they did to him. Quite clearly, Jesus did not share their assessment of themselves. Quite clearly, Jesus did not think 
that all ministry needs to be just these 12 people. And quite clearly then, he didn't agree with their assessment of the exorcist and feel the need to shut him down. And so he emphatically instructs them, do not stop him. Now, they already have, because this is a story from the past. But he's training them for the future. Listen, guys, you did wrong. You shouldn't have stopped him. And if it ever happens again, do not stop these men. And he explains why. In that verse 39, if you pay attention, he explains why they shouldn't have stopped him, why they need not stop them in the future. He not stop him because quite clearly he is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. He may not be part of the twelve, but clearly this man is a lover of Jesus Christ. For do not stop him, for one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon, will, will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. I.e., if he's really doing this in my name and demons are coming out of people, he won't be able to go away from that and speak ill of me. He won't want to. Why? Because he's a follower of me. That's why he's doing it. That's why he's proclaiming my name. Because he has the same values as you. Edmund Hybert, in his commentary, says it this way brilliantly. He says, For this passage quite clearly shows how powerfully the word and work of Jesus had awakened in individuals, listen, even beyond the circle of his constant followers. I think this is a seriously exciting discovery. Because here what we're being informed here, what we're being informed here is there are clearly people over time that were in the crowds with Jesus, that had maybe been there at the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000, that it may have been there when people were healed from the sick, that somehow in God's amazing grace had become followers of Christ. And they weren't part of the twelve, but they were starting to go already into the towns and villages and proclaim Jesus' name and rebuke demons in Jesus' name. And herein is one of them. He's casting out demons, as John tells us, in the name of Jesus. He's doing it dependent on the authority and power of Jesus And unlike the disciples, he's getting it done. He's actually achieving what he wants to do. And so Jesus sits these disciples down and is saying to them, so do not stop him. Never stop him. Because quite clearly, he's a follower of me. He's somebody who's giving himself to me. He's somebody that we should rejoice over. And in verse 40 then, Jesus emphasizes this again and also concludes. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. See, to the disciples, the real issue for them, the real nub of the issue is that he is not part of their twelve. He's not part of our gang. They wrongly believe that ministry in the name of Jesus is the privilege of the few. And, that they're, and so, accordingly, they're profoundly exclusive in the way they go. Ministry is for this. It's our 12. We're the superstars, right? We're the Scotty Pippins. So he shouldn't be doing that. And yet to Jesus, the real issue isn't that at all. To Jesus, the real issue is, listen, if he's not against us, then he is surely for us. 
If he's not against us, he's clearly a follower of me. And in doing it, what he's really saying to the disciples and seeking to teach them is, listen, guys, you 12, it's not about you. It's not about you. There's going to be plenty of others that are going to be proclaiming my name and healing people and exercising demons. You've started to think that it's all about you, but it's not. In fact, it never was about you. C.J. Mahaney says it this way, and looking at the question of what Jesus is really doing here, he says this, Jesus here is opposing the narrow exclusivism of his disciples, and he is openly declaring his heart toward his followers, whoever they may be. Ministry in his name is not the prerogative of the few, but the privilege of all who belong to Christ. For the Lord is seeking to cultivate here a welcoming openness among his disciples towards genuine followers of Jesus who are participating in his mission. So well said. That's what he's seeking to do here. He's seeking to cultivate here a welcoming openness in his disciples towards all those who are genuine followers of Jesus. Well, the disciples needed that, didn't they? They're sitting around, they think they're the superstars. How dare anybody beyond us be doing these incredible acts? They needed to be sat down by the Saviour and instructed on the reality that there are many beyond you that know Jesus and we need to welcome them. We need to love them. We need to support them and encourage them. The disciples in this moment needed this lesson. And you know, the more I've thought about it, the more I realise we need this lesson today as well. See, it is a good thing, I think, to be passionate about your local church. And I'm, I'm the biggest passionate fan about this local church that there is. I mean, I love this church. And whenever I go away, it reminds me how much I love this local church. I love what we stand for. I love the fact that we're passionate about knowing and applying and proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way you serve and the way you give yourself across the board to to making it possible to seek to move this body forward. I love this local church. I love everything about it. I love each and every member in it. And I thank God that so many of you do as well. I get many emails and texts at different points. We even get answering messages left on the machine in in the offices at different points that are so long they have to go over about three different ones because individuals are communicating their gratitude for this local church. I love that. I think it is important that we are passionate about our local church and yet, whenever we are passionate about our local church, we are also in danger if we not guard against it from being exclusive and started to think we really are all that that we really are God's gift to Sydney and beyond. When in reality, my friends, we are not. (laughs) I thank God for this local church, but we are not all that. If we are going to see the gospel go forward in Sydney and beyond, we just need to play a part. But there are many outstanding gospel-driven churches in Sydney that we want to be big fans of and support and pray for and encourage, being aware that we are all one in Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever tribe specifically we may be from, one day we will all gather around the throne and sing, Worthy is the Lamb. 
There are plenty more people out there that are doing great things for Jesus. You know, as a local church, that's why we don't just sing sovereign grace songs. Because I wanted to express, not only do I think there's good songs that we haven't written, but I want to make sure that we're expressing our solidarity with plenty of others, brothers and sisters across the globe. Because these are our brothers and sisters. And they've written great songs. So we want to sing them. It's why we spend time as a pastoral team with different pastors in the city. It's why on different times we have pastors come and speak here. As an expression, in part, of how we realize there's more than just us in the city, right? It's why we spend time giving quotes at different points. Because I want you to know that the fount of all knowledge isn't just in the offices of sovereign grace. We need others speaking in. Others that would disagree with us on secondary issues. That may differ on baptism or whatever it is. But on this issue, we stand aligned. So I want you to know this is their story. Smarter guys than me. That's why we pray for other churches. Sometimes beyond us globally, but sometimes just in Sydney. Because we want you to be aware there's more people than us out there doing some fantastic things. See, I don't think it's just the disciples that need to guard against exclusivism. I think when we become passionate about our local church, and I want us to be passionate about our local church, I will be leading the line in causing us to be passionate about this church. But at the same time, I want us to be passionate, more passionate about Christ and Him glorified. And that takes many Christians across this city if we're going to win people to Jesus. It's important that the disciples got this. But I think it's important as a local church that we get it as well. And so... Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. But the one who is not against us is for us. The disciples needed that. So do we. That's not all the disciples need. Because in verse 41 then, Jesus takes an important yet clear change of tack. So also in talk to his disciples and engage with his disciples about their wrong understanding of roles and the importance of different serving capacities. This is what he says in verse 41. <coughs> he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That's packed with stuff. And can appear a bit out of centre because it doesn't seem to have much to do with verses 38, 39 and 40. But it does. And it particularly has a lot to do with the verses that preceded it. William Lane says it this way. He says, This reference to the person who gives a drink of water to the disciple who belongs to Christ concretely illustrates the principle of verse 40 and indicates how wide is the range of participation in the mission which Jesus envisions. I love that. He's helping them see this mission is wide. There's many different roles in this mission. I mean, Jesus so far has been teaching them that ministry in his name is not just the prerogative of the few. It's the privilege of all who belong to him. And yet now, in verse 41, he, he also wants to broaden their understanding of what ministry involves. Namely, for some, the giving of a cup of water. Well, the disciples needed to hear that. 
Because the disciples are exclusive. They think they're the guys, that no one else is that important. But more than that, they are also obsessed with greatness. They want to be superstars for Jesus, okay? <coughs> the Scotty Pippin tendencies in all their hearts, they want to make a name for themselves in the name of Jesus. That's why the lesson on greatness exists in verses 33 through 37. Because they're walking along, and there's clearly a discussion amongst the disciples of, listen, you know, we're all great, right? We're all great. But who's the greatest of the great? It's probably me. I mean, I'm part of the three. You know, this is probably me. And you can just imagine the conversations. So, you know, I don't, well, you're, you're quite great, but you're not as great as me. And you, that's, what, that's what's going on. They're, they're all discussing how great they really are. And they're no doubt picking on, well, you know, but I noticed the way Jesus looked at me over dinner. And, you know, just his luck was one of, oh, you're so mature. Well done. Congratulations. And, and, and I recognize I'm probably the greatest. I mean, I wouldn't like to ask him, but let's just take it as a given. You know, this is the type of conversations they're having as a group of men. They are convinced that true greatness is so important and greatness is about position and role and the part they're playing. So Jesus gives them that wonderful lesson on greatness to try and help them. But it's clear that John still isn't getting it because now he's moaning and wibbling about this guy who's an independent exorcist. Listen, here's why he's so irritated about it. He's so irritated about it because this man, quote verse 39, is doing mighty work in the name of Jesus. If this guy was just serving a baby crash, they wouldn't have an issue. It's like, that's fine, go ahead. But this guy is doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. And if we let this carry on, people will start to think he's a disciple. They'll start to think he's the greatest, but he can't be the greatest because we're the greatest. Do you see what's going on in their heart? They're obsessed with being great. And so Jesus tells them, guys, God, true greatness if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. It's not about you. It's about serving people. And as he tries to adjust then their faulty view of greatness in ministry, he also wants to help them see then that, guys, listen, whatever acts of service people do in my name, whether they be what you perceive as mighty or indeed small, each one of them matters to the Lord of all. Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Guys, true greatness is about service. And so you're obsessed with greatness. But it isn't about mighty acts. It's about serving people. And when people do that in my name, even when they come up with a small cup of water to help, to help the parched voice, God will bless that. Because exactly like he says there at the end of verse 41, you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Why? Because he's always watching. He's always bothered. He's aware of the parts all in action. And he's one day going to applaud each and every part. Because our faulty view of greatness is not his accurate view of greatness. And his accurate view of greatness is service. And he's going to honor it all. And the disciples desperately needed to hear that. 
Because in their book, superstars are the bigwigs. They're the people that do the mighty acts. And Jesus is helping them see that's not the case at all. True greatness is just serving. And yet I don't think it's just the disciples that need to hear that at different times, is there? I think we need to hear that too. I mean, I thank God for the way Jesse Fenn serves in this local church. Thank God for the role he plays, the hours that he puts in in preparing to service in our music and then actually leads us in song, playing drums and singing at the same time. That's a miracle by itself. (laughs) But playing drums and singing and leading is, is, is astonishing. And I look forward to the day when Jesse Fenn receives his reward from the Lord because that's what's being talked about here. And yet I also thank God that I think standing next to Jesse Finn on that day will be Liz Finn. And Liz Finn, who gives herself to serving her children and caring for her children so that Jesse Finn can do that. I don't think God on that day is going to say, oh, Jesse, come forward. Wow. Oh, Liz, yeah, what did you do? (laughs) I think they'll stand there together And I think the Lord will applaud them both. Because true greatness isn't about position. True greatness is serving. I look forward to the day when we see Brendan Willis before the Lord. And I thank God for the hours of work he puts into serving this local church. And caring for you. Pastoring you primarily through the gift of preaching and teaching. Both here on a Sunday and also in the college. And one day he will without doubt not lose his reward because the gaze of the Saviour is ever watchful. And then I also look forward to the day when Emma Gervin stands before the Lord and having given herself many, many weeks in serving in our baby crash, given that cup of water to care, I thank God we're going to see them both before the Lord and he will usher a well done to both because they played their part. I thank God for the way Riley serves in this local church. God, for the, the role he plays in serving the next generation and giving himself to our youth ministry. Seeing the gospel built in and applied and proclaimed at, the, at a very important age of life for these kids. And I look forward to the day when he will, without doubt, not lose his reward. But I also thank God that on that day, Briar Thompson will be there. And how she gives herself to coming into the offices at different times to write policies for this local church. It's not usually one that people want to put their hand up. Oh, how can I serve? Oh, policies! But invaluable in the serving of this local church and building of this local church. We need policies to be legally operatable. It also is a means of care to you in different circumstances in different ways. And I thank God both Riley and Briar will stand before the Lord and he will issue them their well done. My friends, we get obsessed with greatness being bigness too. And then there's different times, we look at different things we want to serve in in the church and we're like, oh, preaching, yes! I'm a preacher, I've always known it! Oh, well, that, that's really lovely. But is there any chance you can serve on coffee? Oh, oh I don't know. I mean, I've got a lot on. What is that? I think that's the very thing he's talking about here. 
We can be just as obsessed with greatness being bigness as these disciples are. And yet Jesus is settling us down and saying, listen, it's not about the role you play. There is a superstar in our local church. You know what his name is? It's Jesus. This is all his. And after that, the rest of us, we're just serving. Preaching, okay, great. On the band, okay, great. Serving in coffee or or kids' work or serving people cold water. It doesn't matter because whenever we do it unto the Lord, we will by no means lose our reward. Now, for the last six years, that's the way Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney has been built. May we never lose sight of that. It isn't important the role we play. It's just important that we play a part. So whatever the part is, we do it in faith. We do it unto the Lord. And one day we will all stand before him and receive our reward. And what a day that will be, don't you think? So what a great little story this is. It's put in there and you read it first of all and you think, I'm not quite sure what's going on here, nor what it's going to really say to us. But it says a lot. Folks, I want to encourage you then, in heart, may we always be together for the gospel with others in our city. In heart, where we always be keen as a local church to learn from other churches and support and encourage and pray for them. Because we need us all in this city if we're going to truly win people to Christ. And in passion, may we always celebrate all the parts that play in our mission. May we appreciate and acknowledge every part. And may we play our part. And would Christ be the superstar in our church? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way you disciple us. Lord, quite clearly and evidently, it's not just the disciples in that moment sitting at the table with you. We're there too. Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney, taking our seats around your voice, aware that we need to hear it too. And so, Lord, did you have your way in our hearts? Lord, did you forgive us? The times when we are like Scotty Pippin. How, Lord, would we learn by your grace to be more like you? The one who came to give his life away to serve people. And would we take those glasses of water and serve others with them for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.